Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. My guest today is producer and star of the Netflix hit Bling Empire, currently streaming season two. She is the co-owner and founder of Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery and Regenerative Medicine, easy for me to say, Aesthetic Institute. She is a philanthropist, an esteemed collector of haute couture. She is a mom to Baby G, who is an heir to the Song Dynasty, but on Bling Empire. Her glamour, wealth, and Vicious feuding seems closer to the Joan Collins of Dynasty. Welcome to the group text, Christine Chu. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Wow, that's that's quite the introduction. Well, I'm most proud of the mom to baby G. Of course. The entire list. Yes. By the way, we are all it's always that when people say to me, What's what was the best day of your life? I say, the day my son was born. They say, What was the second best day? I said, the day after that. Oh, it's a pretty amazing experience. It is. Were you born? Um, did were you born at Cedars, and did you deliver at Cedars? Um, I was born in New York. My parents moved here when I was three, and my son was born at St. John's. Oh, it's beautiful there. It is. They're all. But by the way, we're so blessed in LA. We have some really great hospitals. Mm-hmm. So I have so much, and we'll come back around to motherhood. Okay. Okay. I watched the show. After Uh-oh. all those cliffhangers, when does three season three start? <laughs> well, technically, there's a there's a second half to season two. Would we so, call that season two and a half? Two B is what we're calling it internally. I don't know what Netflix will officially um, title it as, but there's a hot mess coming our way <laughs> as well. You're a producer of the show. How did you come up with the show? And I got to ask, how did you sell it? You know, I can't take the credit for coming up with the concept. Um, and even before Bling Empire actually hit Netflix and hit the our screens, there were a lot of production companies that had approached me and my husband to be a part of an all Asian, Asian American ensemble cast. And it really just boils down to the chemistry amongst the cast. Um, So there were several, I think I participated loosely in three or four like failed attempts um, at something like this. And then um, we know Jeff Jenkins, the creator, um, very well. We go back over a decade on other development projects. And he brought, um, at that time, it was called Bling Dynasty um, to our laps and um, to see if we wanted to participate in some way. And I really wanted to be a part of it as a producer because I love the art of storytelling and I'm very, um, I get very excited and passionate about telling, you know, stories that are not as uh, maybe widely discussed on um, television right now. And somehow we got lured and suckered into being also on camera. I like, and here we are. I like <laughs> suckered in. Um, I think a lot of this, uh, do you think a lot of this sort of fascination 
that has led to these reality shows, especially within the Asian American community, was tipped off by Crazy Rich Asians, which was such a cute film. Absolutely. I feel like Crazy Rich Asians, even Joy Luck Club, which was surprisingly 20 years before Crazy Rich Asians. I was going to say that was a long time ago. I mean, that was the last um, big screen, all Asian ensemble cast. Um, Unfortunately, I think they ran so we could walk. I mean, they really ran so we could stroll. um, And we're super grateful for that. Because it's a if people haven't seen it, it's an amazing show. But I got to go. I need a little spoiler. I got a little question. You allying with Anna Shea at the end of season two. It, 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 the easiest way for me to explain it, it's like Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin teaming up to fight crime. Okay, <laughs> and which one am I? Which... You guys can take your pick. Did you see that? Oh, my gosh. Did you see that coming? I absolutely did not. And that's the interesting thing with Anna is you really never know what to expect. Even when she promises to go a certain route or, you know, there's a little kumbaya moment where we all get on the same page in a split second, she can change the entire scene and the vibe and the energy. Um, That day. And of course, um, thank you to reality TV gods. Um, That day it was like raining. The weather was all weird. I'm sure Mercury was in retrograde. And we were originally supposed to, now this is like a total inside scoop. Oh, I we had, do tell. <laughs> we were supposed to have like kind of a makeup session. You know, we were supposed to get kind of back on track with each other and um, go to a pizza shop. And in my mind, I had envisioned us throwing flour at each other, maybe like chucking dough at each other and then making a pizza and then being like friendly. Um, but I think that some, the restaurant canceled and then we had to move to a last minute dim sum place. Uh, and she was over an hour late. It was raining. It was dark, gloomy. She showed up and immediately I was like, oh, we are not going to be playing with flower today. She is not in the mood to play nice. Um, but you know, by then I've kind of, I kind of had a good grasp on her and truth be told, I kind of gave up um, because season one, we both were kind of in on the joke. I mean, we were playing this like petty, friendly, but not anything serious. Right. Back and forth dynasty game. It was just, it was for fun. It was for pleasure. We would have a chuckle at the end of it. Um, And, and I think somewhere along the line, reality TV and re in real life kind of blurred for her and somewhere along the lines she actually developed a real dislike of me um that i have yet to discover you know the root for and so going into season two she was i mean guns blazing yeah she did not she was bothered by everything and in that first episode um in that first episode i went in um with a basket of herbs and um, and veggies and the producers had told me look you guys are gonna have and I don't know if it's part of the trick um but they're like look you guys are gonna be friendly it's gonna be fun we love uh, Anna Shay and Christine like duo and they actually said um why don't you guys work on a charity project together and I was like that's a great idea I mean we can we can socially not get along but why don't we put our great resources 
our time, energy, money, finances towards something that has bigger impact. So they really sold me on that idea. And I was, um, I was like totally gung-ho for it. Went in there, we started talking about, that's why the conversation kind of led to charities and we talked about homelessness. Um, and I very quickly realized she was there to pick at everything I said. And then I was just like, this is a lost cause. This isn't going anywhere. I mean, as a producer though, it's interesting um, to me because as a producer, you know what you need mm -hmm. to make a compelling show. Yes. As a cast member, you know that you fit into a role. Mm -hmm. and But I would think it'd be very difficult for you to have a foot in each world because you want to make good TV, but you want it to be real. And like you just said, you're like, am I being set up? How much yeah. of this, how much of this as a producer, do you know? Um, I mean, I know what we're trying to achieve. Like you mentioned, I know the ingredients for compelling reality TV. And in season one, um, not to necessarily pat myself on the back. I like, I really stuck my neck out there. I, yeah, you did. You know, I, I made kind of an asshole of myself, but for pleasure, for entertainment. And I, and I realized it and I, I wanted to push the show forward. I knew we had to do a little bit more to stick, you know, and to um, get the hook. And, and I was willing to take that risk. Um, yeah, every, course, every good show needs a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and fortunately, you know, my, my being a villain wasn't like, I wasn't, you know, throwing anyone's children under the bus or, you know, doing anything criminal. <laughs> it was, we were fighting over a silly necklace. Um, you know, that's, that's the extent of how bad it got. Um, and just playing little tricks on each other, which I thought was harmless, but you know, you're right. It is a very tricky place to be, to have one foot on each side. And I think the trickiest part is I'm a perfectionist. So I want to be the very best producer ever. And then I also want to be the very best um, on-camera talent and to bring the spice and not to have a bland and boring show. But I also want to be authentic to myself so that when my child grows up and watches the show, he could feel like that was actually his mom and that's something that he could be proud of or stand behind. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out that perfect balance. And, and I think one of the most important things about this project is to actually have some meaningful impact. And, um, you know, I went on to tell a story about female infertility because I didn't want to out my husband. Um, and really the, the interviewing producer was so good at his job that he was able to break me down to a place where I really accidentally blurted out, you know, the truth, which was the male infertility that we were experiencing together as a couple. Um, and that was very therapeutic for me in retrospect. I, I'm glad that happened, but it definitely wasn't intended. But the impact of that has been much more than I had ever expected. The, the outpouring of like emails and DMs of women who not only undergo infertility themselves, but the women who, who are in relationships where, when they're, where their husbands are undergoing um, you know, infertility. And, um, and for, I think for me to kind of break that ice or destigmatize ma male infertility, 
that's the silver lining for me um, for being an asshole (laughs) in season one. You bring up the infertility thing, and I thought it was very brave. I I don't thought. I think it it was very brave. Men don't handle those things as well. It's no, they don't. We're so socialized that it's the woman's problem. And women can talk openly. We have an open conversation now about female infertility, yet it's still so taboo to talk about the men. How did the good doctor handle it when you, what did you go home and say when you're like, this slipped out? Oh man. I mean, not only is it difficult for men, um, but for Asian men. Oh, he's going to get to that next. Yeah. It's, um, it's like double, triple that, that, I guess the shame for lack of a better word, um, compared to the expectation of them being the head of household to being the strongest one. And then in Asian cultures, you really, really are not allowed to air your dirty laundry. So it's all of that and more combined. Um, fortunately I'm married to an amazing man. I mean, I, I went home with my head down and tail tucked between my legs thinking I must cook the most amazing meal and like do magic tricks in the bedroom to (laughs) work my way out of this one. And, um, you know, I just, I went up to him and I apologized. I told him what happened and he actually embraced me and he started tearing up and he said, thank you for doing that because he felt he also bore the burden of keeping, of me bearing his shame, if that makes sense. It makes and total he sense. He didn't want that for me either. And that caused him more stress. So um, I guess the the lesson to be learned is it's it's really important to have dialogue and to to be transparent and to have these open discussions. Do you think his being a doctor sort of, trumped even his upbringing in the culture? Um, You mean in terms of expectations? No, in in terms of being okay with discussing it. I think so. I absolutely think so because he always views everything from a scientific um, medical perspective, Um, even with like really awkward conversations on like stomach aches or like he'll break things down in a very medical way. Um, so it removes a little bit. I think it was easier for him as a doctor to confront this situation. You have the beautiful baby G. Could he be any cuter? I mean, seriously. I, I, I'm still like, I, kissing his feet and I know I should not but they're like little baby feet and they're so chubby and I just want to like bite off a toe and I know I sound like a crazy mom no you don't (laughs) because enjoy it now because when they get to a certain age and their feet stink (laughs) trust me that that overwhelming (laughs) desire will go away I people have warned me um boy moms have warned me that there will be an age where they're embarrassed of you oh yeah there will be an age where they smell Oh, God, that's the worst. When the smell fairy arrives, oh. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And if they're into sports, it's worse. No. Well, is chess a sport? Yeah. Chess is a sport, yeah. No, chess is a mental sport. Yes. But you don't have to worry about, you know, stinky, sweet, stinky boys in the car. And don't worry. If you do your job right, I'm, I'm hoping that I have not yet failed. You mess them up just enough that they never want to leave mommy. 
How? How? Tell me everything now. That was my goal and I failed. Mine's like a functional human. I don't know where I went wrong. I mean, I just, I'm just sucking it all up right now while I can because God forbid that one day he falls in love and like casts me aside. I'm, I'm, I am in that. I cannot tell you the, all I can tell you is I think we need a support group. Uh, (laughs) So now you want to have more children and I know losing your mom was incredibly painful for you. It's something I can, I can relate to. Did, did having a child help with the grief? Um, absolutely. I think it helps. As you know, it comes and goes, right? It comes in waves. Sometimes it sprinkles, sometimes it pours, sometimes it's just a natural disaster and you just need like a personal timeout. Mm-hmm. Um, the great thing is I look at baby G and I feel like I see my mom and I feel my mom. Um, because I mean, little things like my mom's favorite color was purple. I actually hate the color purple because it was my mom's favorite color. I grew up in a purple house with purple carpet, purple furniture. She only wore purple. And so I don't own a single purple thing in my closet because I just was overexposed. And baby G's favorite color is purple. And his and his favorite like numbers, his favorite food, his favorite everything is like my mom's favorite. And I just, when I look at him, I'm just so grateful to have like a little piece of my mom still um, kind of floating around in a very like joyous way. And, and I'm really grateful that my mom got to spend some time with ABG. Um, and we have these conversations about uh, my mom actually, baby, do do three-year-olds ask about death a lot? Because I, I don't know if that's normal, but baby G does ask me about death and heaven a lot. Really? Grandma and heaven. And what kind of toys, um, can he bring up to heaven to visit grandma and can he FaceTime grandma in heaven? And, you know, like it's, I just, I'm grateful that he has memories of her. And he can talk about her fondly. I mean, that's that's lovely that he still that that they had enough time together that he he feels her presence and remembers it and wants it to continue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really that's very very special. Um, do you think that's also part of the reason that you really do want to continue to try and have a bigger family? When, when my mom passed, it was so unexpected. Um, I didn't get the phone call until she was already in ICU. Um, and the, and she was in Taiwan and I was in the U S and, uh, the doctor said that she maybe had hours. Um, so of course I bolted out the door, didn't pack anything. It was in the middle of the pandemic, um, flew to Taiwan at that time there was, um, there was still a very strict quarantine. It was 14 days quarantine in a quarantine hotel. And then seven days following that, a soft quarantine. And so every day when I got there, I was, you know, I, my mom was still kind of, she could still understand. I was begging her to stay alive, um, to wait for me to get out of quarantine so I could see her. And fortunately she did wait for me. And so I got to spend three days with her at the hospital. Um, but 
because I don't really have an identity in Taiwan, I left when I was such a young child. I didn't have an ID. I didn't have like, I didn't have a passport. I didn't have an ID. I didn't, I, I had kind of severed ties with um, my dad's side of family. And I was really alone by myself in Taiwan trying to figure out how to manage, you know, her in the hospitals. And I forgot how to read Chinese. Um, and then afterwards, I couldn't even prove that I was her daughter. And so it was going through all of that alone um, without any family that really made me think like, I don't want that for baby G. You know, if anything were to happen, even if it's not death, maybe it's just trials and tribulation in life. I, I want him to have a sibling to lean on. It, it's, it's, your story is quite similar to when I lost my mother. And I think about that with my son, that he's it. That, and I think about that also being an only child that I don't have anyone to share those, who has common memories. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people here and there, but um, it's scary. And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to have any more children. And I always, I think that's one of my big regrets. Mm. You know, and the other thing I, I noticed that was similar, have you decided where to put the ashes because I have scattered my mom all over the world. Oh, really? I've gone to so many of her places. I have sent to friends overseas. She's in Bergdorf Goodman. She's everywhere. (laughs) She is truly international. Have you, have you figured out what to do? We filmed um, all of this actually for season two. And I think Netflix really, you know, it's a happy escapist type of show. And so I think they just didn't want to dive too much into it. But we did explore all of the different things that ways we could celebrate my mom and her ashes. Um, and ultimately, we filmed it. I, um, I went to my pastor at my church. We attend Bel Air Presbyterian Church. Bel Air Press. Bel Air Press, yes. Um, and uh my, before my mom passed, she actually promised she would move in with us. I was begging and begging and begging her, and she finally promised, and then she passed. And I just, I was telling my pastor that I wasn't ready to let go. Um, you know, I explored the various ways, and none of it felt right. And I asked if it was okay if I can keep her. <laughs> and um, and we prayed about it, and the pastor was like, you know what, this is if it feels right for you to have your mom finally move in with you, then you should do it. So, so she has her own room. She, <laughs> she, she moved in with us. Okay. Well, you're not so alone in this because I have a whole bunch of my mom. She's in with my good bags. And I figured that somewhere she'd be happy. Um, I have some of my dad and I have some of my godfather. Oh, I love that. But yes, I made sure my mom was, she's with the Birkins. So, and, and a couple of vintage, her good Judith Liebers that don't fit anything. Oh. She's like in a night, she's got a view for, and she's in a closet. She's very oh. happy. Uh, oh, I love it. But let's pivot now to one of both of our favorite topics, fashion. Yes. You are one of the youngest couture clients in the world. How did your love of couture begin? Because people don't understand that's, that's taking fashion to a completely, 
completely different level. Mm -hmm. I, I was um, the youngest couture client when I was in my 20s when I started. Now I'm, you know, I'm aging. So um, I'm sure there are younger ones popping up. But uh, I, I've always loved fashion because as an adult, I've always loved fashion because as a child, my parents were very strict and they kept me very academically focused. So I didn't have any Barbie dolls. Um, I was in uniforms. I read books for fun. Um, and that was pretty much it. I studied and read books and got good grades. Um, so as an adult, all of that suppressed fashion energy kind of like exploded and I really dove in. Um, and the first time I was invited to a couture show, Chanel au couture, of course, like. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So your first show you were ever invited to was Chanel. What the hell were you doing to at I least know, right? get invited? I don't get invited to any shows ever. How did you wrangle that? Well, I was a Chanel ready to wear client. And I think, I think that the team saw that it was more than just shopping for me. I really wanted to know. I'm, I'm like a super nerd. You know, I've always been a nerd. Um, I know I look like, you know, kind of like socialite-ish, but if you saw my pictures way back, you would see I'm like, I have glasses. I studied all the time. Um, so I was really into the who's and the what's and the why's and the how's with fashion. Like, what's behind this collection? What was inspiration? Where were the materials sourced? You know, who are the, um, who's in the atelier? Who's making the decisions? Whether it's the fashion history or the education of it or the business of fashion. I just wanted to know more. And I think it stemmed from that, that the team was like, you know what? This girl wants to know more. Let's show her more. Let's take her to Paris. Let's show her Coco Chanel's apartment. <gasps> Let's, um, which is like, so I got, I have goosebumps, which is so fascinating to be able to like dive into the mind of Coco Chanel and, um, and, and to see where all of these collections that we now enjoy, like where the inspiration stems from um, and have all of those anecdotal stories of her life and her romances. And anyway, um, so it's because I'm a super nerd that the fashion industry kind of um, opened the doors for me. And through Ocator, that's where you really get to learn about everything. Yep. Um, you, you go behind the curtains and you, you dive into the, the materials, the threads, the people, and you make these long lasting relationships. My, I've had my um, same Ocator seamstress from Chanel for over a decade. Um, and she's kind of been through all of my life's journeys as well. Um, and, you know, I get to rekindle these friendships with the teams and, and I'm like, so in awe of them too, because as you know, the craft of haute couture, it's, it's a dying, it's an art, it's a dying, unfortunately craft. And it, it's these artisans, they have to pass this down from generation to generation. It's over a hundred years old, um, over 150, I think. What was your first haute couture piece? Um, at first I was sticker shocked, like most oh my people God. would be. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, you won. How much for that? Um, and it wasn't because I didn't see the value of it because the houses did a really good job of, of explaining why and educating me on why 
they were so expensive. It's labor intensive. Every stitch is done by hand. It's tens of thousands of hours of work at a minimum. So um, my first purchase were, I, I believe they were like a pair of boots, um, Chanel Okator boots made by hand by the great Massaro. And, and those were like 40,000 euro boots. And I thought that was like crazy, you know, in my 20s to be spending that kind of money. But I also felt like it was a museum piece. And it was so, and the history and the wealth of knowledge I gained from it, um, you know, it was just, it's irreplaceable. Were you scared to wear them? Oh, I wore them. <laughs> <laughs> I would be terrified. <laughs> oh, I, I made sure those boots saw everything around town, <laughs> grocery store, gas station, everywhere. Do you still have them? I do. I do. And I remember I wore them with like, at that time I was very into, and I'm still kind of into it, um, the high and the low. Yep. So I remember pairing it with like, can I remember what like regular brand? And I was really proud that they could coexist and, and they could both be definitive of me in appreciation for the artistry of Vocateur and also someone who is just like a relaxed, you know, 20 something year old. Do you have an everyday uniform? Uh, sweats. <laughs> if I can get away <laughs> with it, yes. What's your favorite brand of sweats? I'll take it from any brand, really. I wear, I do not discriminate as long as they're comfortable and loose and I can run errands in them. Um, I love Balenciaga sweats right now just because just they they're cute. cool. Yeah, they're cute. The cut is really um, like the streetwear is just, I'm just vibing with it. Um, with with ready to wear, because so, you know, Haute Couture is, 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 you know, not accessible to the majority of the world. Of the ready to wear, what brand do you continually go back to? Oh, ready to wear. Right now, I, I because I have relationships with almost all of the houses, um, I tend to be a relationship buyer. I appreciate the fashion and the creativity, of course, um, first and foremost. But I I think during the pandemic, I really learned to focus my, and to appreciate my spending power um, and to focus it on, um, and to target it towards companies that are either stretching the dollar, um, giving back to the community, um, at that time is giving back to um, pandemic efforts, um, or getting efforts getting out of the pandemic, or designers who really stand for something. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of creativity and just pure artistry, I love Kim Jones. Um, I have been buying a lot of Kim Jones menswear. Really? Um, yeah. Yes, and asking them to, this is what happens. When you dive into the world of Okatora, you somehow think that like everything can be customized to your body. So then you dive back into ready to wear and you're like, can you just recut that men's shirt into, you know, like something different. Um, So I've been buying, I've been buying men's for as well and having it recut um, to wear. But yes, Kim Jones men's, um, I like Fendi, Balenciaga. Um, Chanel's always a classic go-to. Valentino's fun. I, I don't really discriminate. Right. Okay. Let me rephrase the question. So like yes. for me, I know when I need a blazer or a suit, the Stella McCartney ones fit me the best. Oh. I know which, whose pants fit me the best. I know whose dresses fit me the best. Uh-huh. 
who is your, I know I can find something that's going to fit enough that I don't have to do so much work. Like, like I said, I said, like, I know I needed a new suit. The first thing I looked at were the Stella McCartney suits because I knew I wouldn't have to do that much work on it to make it fit. Unfortunately, I'm oddly sized. But so am I. That's why I ask. I'm, 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 I am all, I am multiple sizes. I am all over the place. So everything needs to get altered. Um, but my, I, my go-to kind of everyday uniform is a Tom Ford sweater dress. Okay. Um, it comes with a hood. It's like cashmere. I know the dress. Yeah, I have it in different colors. I throw on like a jean jacket. If it's a casual thing, I throw on combat boots. Um, or I can throw on a blazer if like I'm going to a meeting, but I don't want to, you know, look like I'm too stiff. Um, or I wear it on to the airport. It, that's that's my go-to. Yeah, only really skinny people can wear Tom Ford without Spanx. So I'm just going to leave that <laughs> at that. Um, you brought those married to a plastic surgeon. Yes, exactly. Because I used to be able to wear those little Tom Ford sweater dresses. Now I'm like, oh, geez, is it worth wearing Spanx? Not so much. <laughs> um, you did Dancing with the Stars. Yes. Was that fun? That was the best time of my life. I I probably will sneak on set next season and just try to insert myself anywhere. Um, it was such a, I feel like, I feel not to get too sentimental. I feel like God and, and my mom kind of dropped that um, in my life when I really, really needed it. Because as you may know, filming a reality show um, is very chaotic and stressful. And, um, and then it was also during a time, you know, after I lost my mom and I was a little lost, I was super vulnerable. Um, I was sad and, and dancing is my happy place. Um, it was such a great outlet for me. Um, and so I'm just so grateful to have had that opportunity. And the people are so fun. And it's, it's ironic because you're on a competition show. But I felt the camaraderie on that show more than I felt anywhere else on any other project. There's so much support. Um, and of course, you like get in really good shape, which is also good for your mental health. Yeah, it's not bad being paid to get into shape. Did you have fun right. during all the costumes fitting? Because that's a very couture experience as well. Uh, fun, but also petrified to be showing like all of my nooks and crannies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, really heavily dependent on spray tanning. Um, and, you know, always praying that the snap doesn't come undone. (laughs) (laughs) Like there are so many, I think my top three um, thoughts prior to starting a dance was please don't fall flat on your face. Please do not pee out of like either fear or excitement. And please, (laughs) (laughs) and please do not let anything like snap. Um, and that was it. Well, I have, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the show through, Something I've, I'm doing today with you because I have so many questions. Let's do a lightning round. Oh, okay. okay. Just quick answers. Okay. Okay. What is Kane's reason for meddling? Insecurity. What is Kevin's fascination with, with anal sex all about? He's a dude. <laughs> Talk to me about the vibrating chair your husband has in the office. 
Oh, need to get on that. <laughs> Literally or figuratively? <laughs> uh, but both. It's definitely fits. Yeah, I need to get on that. Yeah. Did you have to Google sunning buttholes or did you already have someone in your Rolodex? <laughs> I had to Google it. Before I let you go, I have an extremely important question. Okay. You watch the show and the level of opulence is mind-blowing. Are there any eligible bachelors in the crowd for me? Or can I at least come to a party with one of those amazing, like, parting gifts? I'm a very good guest, and I promise to write a thank you note. Just asking. I will will do better than that. I will send you a gift from all of the parties, and I will introduce you to some very nerdy doctors. I love that. Christine, (laughs) you are amazing. Everybody needs to watch Bling Empire. You can binge it. You can watch it. You can catch up. It's truly a wonderful, wonderful show. Christine, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me on. Ahura Media Production.